I promised my listeners when the Dobbs decision happened that we were going to talk about how this relates to Black women's history because it feels important and overlooked, as it always is. So today, we're going to talk about it. Hey y'all, turns out this episode already has a really good introduction, so I'm just going to pop in real quick to tell you that I'm talking with Professor Jennifer Morgan from NYU, mostly about her book, Laboring Women, Gender and Reproduction in the Making of New World Slavery, but also how current legislation controlling women's bodies, like the June Dobbs decision and everything that has followed after it, starts with state control and violence on Black women's bodies. I guess just kind of a basic fact of the whole thing is that Right now, people have a lot of feelings about the government legislating reproduction, but that's not at all a new thing in America. Black women's reproduction was a subject of laws from like the late 1600s. Before we get into the fact that Black women's reproduction was legislated, kind of from the first contact between white people and Africans, there was a way that Black women were separated from white women in how they were talked about, seen. Because like in Africa, before contact, African women didn't think of themselves as like, I'm specifically different. It was difference that was imposed. So yeah, let's start with there. Okay, thank you. If we think about race from where we're sitting now, we sometimes miss the way that race and racism and racial hierarchy developed over time, right? I like to think of race and racism, frankly, as a tool that's mobilized in order to make certain kinds of behavior appear to be legitimate. So, you know, slavery is a human phenomenon. Slavery exists in Africa, existed in Africa, existed in Asia, existed in Europe, existed in the Americas. Slavery, enslavement, captivity, these are human phenomena, What's different about what we now know of as racial slavery begins in the 15th century with Europeans making contact with African states and beginning the process of trading for many things, which then included enslaved laborers. And as they started to do that, they, Europeans, developed a way of thinking about Africans to make it appear that Black people were different than white people. And so whiteness wasn't a thing. Europeanness wasn't a thing. Europe was deeply divided and constantly at war with each other. And so the French versus the English versus the Spanish versus the Italians, these were very distinct groups of people. As we move forward from the 15th into the 16th century, part of what's happening is whiteness is emerging as a category and blackness is. And one of the things that I argue in Laboring Women is that that one of the ways in which Europeans developed blackness was through making claims about African women's bodies, right? Saying that black women didn't experience pain in childbirth, had these sort of freakish and monstrous bodies that enabled women to breastfeed their children over their shoulder, that they didn't believe in marriage or monogamy, or they didn't have family units. All of these were accusations that Europeans made against Africans in order to justify enslaving them, to say they didn't feel pain the same way. They weren't as connected to their children. They didn't love their families. All of these things become part of what defines Africans as enslavable. And then the second thing, which speaks directly to reproduction, is that, you know, race as a, as a concept is something that's inherited, 
right? It's something that's passed down. And so part of what you need to kind of develop a notion of an inherited quality is the idea that women are reproducing other black children, right? Other, other black people. So enslaved women's reproductive lives become embedded in the justification for enslavement and in the idea that these are people who will always be enslaved, which is different than how slavery functions prior to the transatlantic slave trade. There are a lot of instances where enslaved people are only enslaved for their lifetime or can purchase their freedom easily and become free people and their children are free. Um, but one of the things that happens that gets codified in the Atlantic world is that enslaved people's children are always presumed to be enslaved because blackness becomes this kind of shorthand for enslavability. Yeah. Wow. Your book actually starts with like the origin of race. Mm-hmm. Because we have to think about women if we're going to recognize the role that both enslaving women had for Europeans and being enslaved had on Black women, we have to start with how hereditary racial slavery depends on the idea of women's reproductive lives. Um, and so the idea that somehow reproduction and family formation is not the concern of the state, that doesn't make any sense because it's at the heart of how racism and how racial slavery get embedded in not just North America, but in the Caribbean, in Latin American countries, in the the growth of European economies. It's all based on slave labor. And that requires at least the symbolic capture of women's reproductive future. Yeah, wow. And reproduction and labor? There was, from the beginning, Black women were seen differently because of reproduction, but also because of, like, strength and their ability to work. It was assumed that, like, white women were, you actually said, like, weak. Because Black women were, like, strong, they could go out and do the work. You talked about how there was, like, this idea that they didn't feel pain in childbirth. They could Mm -hmm. just, like, have a kid and, like, a couple Mm -hmm. days later go back out and work. Yep. which was kind of in contrast to a white woman's weakness. Mm-hmm. You know, and I want to be, I want to be careful and I want to be clear, you know, rural working white women in Europe were not laying around in recovering from childbirth for six weeks either. But the way that European travel writers talked about African women, they talked about them as giving birth without pain, literally giving birth, getting up, strapping a baby onto their back and then going to work, right? And then they would contrast that to like, quote unquote, our women who spend weeks recovering from childbirth. This was a symbol that was mobilized to say, you see, African women are different. African women are made to do physical work and can do it. And there's another piece of this is that European travel writers accused African men of doing no work. Right. They they talked about African men kind of laying around under trees gossiping. So they feminized African men while masculinizing African women in this really kind of useful slippage. Right. So, of course, they relied on African men's physical strength and presumed that African men had that physical strength. But when they were critiquing African societies, they often used these images of Black men kind of not doing work while Black women did it. 
So there's a lot of awful things that you read in these early travel accounts that are lies and fabrications and all sorts of storytelling practices that together justify slavery and racism. Yeah, because that really explains a lot like why these travel narratives were dominated by the white writers talking about black women because they saw them as part of reproduction. And then, like you said, just kind of getting up, strapping the baby to their back. And then there was, you kind of mentioned it, but there's, you spent a lot of time on the book is that like, they were depicted as like having really big breasts so that they would strap the baby to their back and then just like whip their breast over their shoulder to like breastfeed the baby mm-hmm. while they were working. Mm-hmm. The chapter that you're talking about is called Some Could Suckle Over Their Shoulder, which was an image that was, it was both a story told and it was also a literal image, uh, a woodcut or a print in these books that would depict a woman um, with her breast over her shoulder, nursing a baby at her back, which is not possible just for your younger and, you know, women who have not breastfed, you might not know that that is literally not possible. (laughs) Um, I did. I was like wondering, just, I was like, is it? No, not possible. (laughs) Okay. Um, and, and, but again, and so it took me when I started reading those narratives and seeing those images, I was like, what on earth is going on here? And for me, it became clear that this was another little, it's a little tool. It's a little image that says like, these women's bodies are not like our women. These women's bodies are made to work because if I don't even have to sit down and rest while I'm nursing my baby, that just proves that my body is made for constant hard physical labor, right? So it's just one of many ways in which, you know, some racist accusations, some racist assumptions about Black people are not gendered in that way. Um, I'm thinking about the uh, 19th century white physician who diagnosed Black people with a disease called draptomania, which was a desire to run away. That was to explain slaves leaving plantations as their mental illness rather than a reflection on the institution being terrible. So like, if that's a disease, that's another way of mounting an accusation against Black people using a kind of physical idea, like of disease or physical ability or physical uh, capacities to say like, these people should be enslaved. These people can't worship or organize their lives or be parents in the way that we Europeans are. So these travel narratives that we've been talking about really shaped how they shaped how people who had never like been to Africa or interacted with an African person viewed black people. That was their first introduction to like, this is what black people are. So then by the time that like the transatlantic slave trade started, these assumptions of black women as both laborers and producers went into like the ratios of how many black women were sold into the slave trade. Mm-hmm. Cause that's another part of your book where you say black women are often absent or overlooked. Is that like the depictions are usually men being dragged into slavery, but yeah. lots of women also were part of the transatlantic slave trade. Exactly. If, especially. So if you divide the slave trade into three periods, like the period up to 1700 
the period between 1700 and 1807, which is when the English and the Americans outlawed the slave trade. And then the final period, which goes from like 1807 until the ban on slavery altogether, which isn't completed until 1888. So if you divide the slave trade into those periods, in the first period up to 1700, you have the most numbers of women who are captured, right? And so the foundational years of the American colonies, you have many places in which men and women are relatively equal in number, right? So if you think about like early sugar plantations, let's say in Barbados or in Jamaica or in Antigua, St. Christopher, if you could go back and look at those fields and who was working in the sugarcane fields, there were often female majorities because the other work of the plantation and of the colony, men were forced to do that. So the work of road building and construction, of loading and carrying goods to the port, working on ships or working at the docks, all of that stuff tended to be male laborers. So the most kind of degraded work, which is the field work, um, there were a lot of women doing that. I think we tend to imagine that women who are enslaved were working in, you know, quote unquote, the big house. But that's really a 19th century phenomenon. And even then, the number of enslaved women and men who work in white households is very small. It's like 5%. You know, and so you do have women who are working as like cooks and house cleaners and maid servants, women who are tending other women's children or raising the children of the white family. That definitely is happening. But the majority of women who are enslaved are field workers. Yeah, because you were talking about like that domestic work that we kind of often see black women as doing was considered white women's work. And then specialized work was considered male work. So... Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Left the fields to black women, which also kind of goes back to Africa in these travel narratives. Because in the narratives, part of what they're arguing is that women are doing agricultural work in Africa, which women are doing agricultural work all over the world. That's not a unusual. Women are doing agricultural work on European feudal plots, right? Like, so women do agricultural work in the world, but the way in which that work is depicted by European travelers to West Africa and West Central Africa is to suggest that women are naturally doing that work and should continue to do that work for European planters in the Americas. So that's the slippage. You know, again, we need to be really clear the way that race produces this shorthand, this kind of idea that somehow I can say like, well, in Africa, Black women do this work as though that's different than everywhere, right? Indigenous women are working the land in North America and in the Caribbean and Latin America when the European settlers arrive. That's one of the things that happens again. But the explanation for it that European slave traders, and like you said, the sort of European reading public, people who never go to the Americas, who never buy or sell enslaved people, are reading stories and hearing reports and reading the newspapers and sort of developing an idea that Black women and men are completely different than Europeans and are degraded and should stay degraded. You know, that's that's part of a cultural shorthand that's developing both in Europe and in the Americas. It's surprising, actually, is that you didn't often see people like plantation owners or people buying slaves only buying groups of men. Mm-hmm. But there are 
ships that arrive in which men significantly outnumber women. There are captures of male soldiers, for example. There's no question that there are plantations in which there are male majorities. So I don't want to suggest that female majorities are happening throughout the period of the slave trade. That is not true. And also there's something different that happens in North America versus in the Caribbean and Latin America. And that is that in part because of the crops that people are working in North America, the the disease and the mortality rate is lower when you're working in tobacco, for example. And what that means is that there are what we would call naturally increasing Black populations in North America. The enslaved population starts to grow naturally. In other words, births outnumber deaths. And so when the United States bans the slave trade in 1807, They do so because they perceive Africans as being dangerous. And they perceive that in part because of what has just happened in Haiti, in which a black majority colony, people rose up and took that colony from the French, right? So suddenly the Americans are like, Africans are dangerous. They're rebellious. That's, that's, there's a thread of that conversation. So in North America, they're like, okay, we're stopping the slave trade, but let's be clear. There's a massive trade of slaves that happens from what we would call the original, like the 13 colonies, the the upper South into the lower South. So the slave trade, the transatlantic trade may have stopped in 1807, but the internal trade continues and it continues because slave owners are selling women's children from them. Slave owners are appropriating, and this gets back to our first question, are appropriating women's bodies for the purposes of capitalist growth and are using the laws of the state to justify and allow and protect their ability to steal people's children and put them into markets, right? That is what is happening starting in, I mean, it's been happening the whole time, but there's a whole structure of sale that happens in North America that relies on the violence done to black women's bodies to ensure the profit of the slave trade. Yeah. A couple episodes ago, there was an episode about family separation Mm. and we just talked about how there were no protections for children. You could take a newborn child away from their mother and sell them off. Absolutely. Any age, a child could be separated from their parents and a lot of them were, but I want to go back to, you were talking about like these naturally growing Black populations. That's a lot of the reason why people bought Black women as slaves was that it was like an investment now because they could go mm-hmm. out in the fields and work and like a future investment because mm-hmm. she could produce yeah. more slaves. Yeah. But for that to make sense, we have to get into the law because mm-hmm. kids being attached to their mother and not their father is not how that works. That goes back to these first laws about women's reproduction in America. Here's the story. Here's the here's the key moment. Okay, so in six, and and yeah, I'll tell you the story, and then I'm going to qualify it a little bit. So in 1656, okay. 1656, there's a woman. She's in Virginia. She's an enslaved woman in Virginia. Her mother, actually, she's maybe enslaved, maybe indentured, and that's part of the question. Her mother is one of the first. Angolan captives who sold in Virginia, you know, the 1619 group of 20 or 21 black captives who were sold into Virginia. Elizabeth Key's mother 
was one of that group or one of uh, the next ship that arrives. So it was sold into Virginia in early 1620. Elizabeth is born to that Angolan woman and to a white, free, property-owning man named Thomas Key, who, you know, who I'll just say, who rapes her mother. Uh, we don't know anything about the nature of their relationship, but I'm confident that whatever it was, he had power and she did not. Yeah. There's yeah. no consenting. Yeah. So Elizabeth Key, as a young child, she's placed into an indenture. Now an indenture is not enslavement. An indenture is a contract that says that you have to work for somebody for so long and then you're done working. And her father goes to England and he says to the person who he puts her into an indenture that he wants her to be raised as a a free Christian woman. Now he dies in England, her indenture is sold to someone else and then is sold again. And by that time, she's no longer listed as a servant, but she's listed as a slave. So there's something going wrong. And she's been held in indenture now for many years, over a decade longer than she should have been. So in that capacity, as a 26-year-old woman, she goes to the court and she sues for her freedom. And she uses as her evidence the fact that her father was free and Christian, the fact that she is a Christian, and the fact that people in the community know that she was supposed to be free. The lower court gives her her freedom, then Somebody countersues and they take it away. And then she goes to the Virginia House of Burgesses, which we would now think of as like the state Senate, right? So she goes there and she again sues for her freedom. And this time they give it to her. That's 1656. She is free. She marries an Englishman and her child, when this starts in 1656, she has a child, um, is now also free, right? Six years later, the House of Burgesses in 1662 revisits this case, right? And they say, okay, there's been some confusion, but from this point forward, the child of an African woman conceived by an Englishman will follow the condition of the mother. That's the law that says that if Englishmen rape African women, They are not producing kin, rather they are producing property. They're saying that a woman's body, an enslaved woman's body, conveys enslavement to her child. And that is a very different law than how the English and Europeans in general have always understood paternity, right? And let's be clear. European men are fathering children out of wedlock all the time who are not considered their heirs, right? They are fathering bastards. They are, you know what I mean? There are people and, and this is, so it's not like everything's good and lovely for those children conceived out of wedlock in Europe. And there are laws. Men are punished for conceiving children out of wedlock. They have to pay support. There are strategies to make sure that those children don't become a burden on the state. But that's not what the Virginia House of Legislation does when they are faced with the case of Elizabeth Key. They say, let's be clear, that child is not a bastard. That child is a slave. And that's a very important reversal of the way that Europeans are understanding paternity and paternal inheritance. They're saying in this case, the only thing that matters is the blood of the mother. 
is the color of the mother and her capacity is only ever to produce more enslaved or enslavable people. It's a huge, you know, and let me also be clear. It's not that there aren't mixed race children who are being born before 1662 who are also presumed to be enslaved, right? So it's just that it's 1662, the Virginia legislative body puts it into law. And that's the condition moving forward in the United States and elsewhere. Yeah, that law legislates like both reproduction and race. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And the government has been telling Black women about reproduction. That what was that almost 400 years ago? Mm-hmm. So a lot like that's it's a very long time. It's not new. And so and here's what I would say about that, about how we make a connection between this early history of slavery and where we are now. Up until the Civil War, Black women's reproductive capacity was seen as a value, right? It was seen as something that, you know, slave owners wanted to control because it gave them, as you just said, it gave them more wealth. If a woman is working in the field, that's one thing. If she has a baby, that's better. If she has two, if she has three, if she has four, that's better, right? With the Emancipation Proclamation, all of the sudden, Black women's children were a problem, right? And you see immediately after the Emancipation Proclamation, when Black families are reforming and when Black men and women are negotiating labor contracts that are going to become sharecropping, that are going to hugely disadvantage Black families. One of the things that they do is a white landowner will say, let's say there's a Black family that has three children. They'll sign a labor contract. And the Black family is assuming that the father is going to work the land while the mother is going to care for the children. The white landowner is assuming that he now gets five laborers. He wants everybody in that family on the land. Whereas black people are saying, no, we are a family and somebody is taking care of children and somebody is working outside the home. So black families are trying desperately to make claims on the privacy and the integrity of their family. And the laws are working against them. And so so you have that moment, which is like a pivot. And then you have the moment in which Black people, if we move further out of the 19th and into the 20th century, in which it's assumed that Black children are always criminals. It's assumed that Black women have too many children. Um, In other words, the state has always presumed that it has the right to regulate and to categorize Black women's reproductive capacities as the state sees fit, so that children become not members of family or not like part of kinship groups, but rather they're either commodities during slavery or they're problems after slavery, right? They're drains on the state. They are potential soon to be criminals. They are mentally incompetent. They're all of the ways that we see Black children being demonized now, I would argue, is rooted in this moment in which the presumption is that Black women's bodies are there simply to benefit the wealth and the power of white slave owners. And this is something that other scholars have written about widely. And I'm thinking particularly about Dorothy Roberts in her work, Killing the Black Body, where she 
makes a very clear connection between the history of slavery and the ways in which Black women's reproductive capacities have been destroyed and or demonized by the state, by medical authorities, etc. And the other person who's written about this most recently is Linda Villarosa, the New York Times journalist who published two articles in the New York Times about the Black maternal mortality crisis, about the involuntary sterilization of poor Black women, and who's recently published a book called Under the Skin, in which she pulls all of this together. The reproductive thread comes through, and even the like Black women have to be laborers thread, because like second wave feminism, one of the big things was like white women were like fighting to mm-hmm. like be professionals, mm-hmm. but like Black women always had to work. There was this like assumption that like, not an assumption, maybe a stereotype that like, if a black woman was not out working, she was lazy. Well, Mm -hmm. there was one, the fact that like black people just made less money. So like there was a necessity for it, but there was also like, if a black woman was like, I'm going to be a housewife, that was like laziness. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. this like dual role of like black women have to labor and controlling black women's wombs Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is like a through line that I see. Absolutely. Absolutely. If we are really going to pull that line as far back as we can, we need to focus on those travel narratives again, right? Like this idea that an outside observer can make a claim about an entire people's way of living and say, African men are lazy, African women feel no pain, these kinds of huge, huge claims that then become somehow that claims making becomes legitimate because it's happening in the context of race and racial hierarchy. And I think we see, I think the kind of stereotypes that you're talking about now are part of that. It's like that somehow people in leadership positions are allowed to say things like black women are, you know, like, what does that even mean, right? How can you even say that about a complex group of people, but somehow we use race and racism as a way to enable those kinds of massive generalizations and violences. And and now we're living with the legacy of that. The fact that because like race was created, the fact that we still try to categorize this whole group of people is this, it doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But of course, it does make sense. It makes sense for capitalism. It makes sense for the unequal distribution of wealth. It makes sense because we get this language in which we blame people for structures. You know, you somehow you blame black children for being lazy when in this country, if you're poor and black, you're living in substandard housing, you're exposed to lead and to other pollutions as an infant, you are packed into a school that has few teachers who are underpaid and too many kids in the classroom. And then you're going to say, oh, black kids aren't smart. And you see what work it does. It means like, oh, black people are disorganized. They're not smart. They're not good parents. They're lazy. They only care about flashy things or whatever. Say whatever racist thing you want. What you never get, you never are forced, if you buy into this, to deal with the structures that have been in place in this country for 400 years that say some people get to achieve and others don't. And the other important thing is that it's not just black people, right? It's, I would say that this country is founded on some lessons learned around slavery and dispossession, the dispossession of native people 
from their land, the appropriation of Black people's work. But what we now know is that all sorts of people are dispossessed and are, their labor is appropriated. So it's not just Black people who are laboring or being woefully underpaid, who are working, you know, two or three jobs and still can't raise themselves above the poverty line. It's all sorts of people. It's poor white people in in many parts of this country. I mean, the vast majority of people who are poor are white people. It's just that the majority of black people are poor. The majority of immigrant people are poor. Those kinds of slippages and structural inequities, the way they get hidden by racist accusations, is re- it's really important for us to unpack that. Really important. Otherwise, we never will see the kind of changes that we need to make in this country to distribute wealth more equitably and to give people the right to live a a full life. Back to early structures. Yeah. In the book, you talked about there was the 1662 law, Mm -hmm. but you talked about that as one of like two laws about Black women that really solidify this structure. There was a tax law a couple years before that. Yes, in 1643, there was a ruling about the language then was called tithable, but it was essentially taxes. So if you were a landowner, you had to pay a tax on the labor of the people, you know, on the people who worked for you. And in that context, there was, and remember, we're we're talking the 1640s, everybody was working the land, right? But the difference is, is that white women their labor was not seen as taxable because the assumption was is that white women were members of families. And if they were single at the moment, they were only temporarily so, and that they would be a wife soon. Whereas Black women's labor was always taxable. So even a Black woman who was married to a Black man and who was working the family farm, her labor was taxed. So it was the first law that distinguished responsibility or behavior or whatever on the basis of race. So that's the first law in this country that says, this is how it works for white people. This is how it works for black people. And it happened around the issue of women's labor. Yeah. So the assumption there is that like a white woman won't always be working because at some point she's going to be like a wife and mother, but a black woman, even if she becomes a wife and mother, is still supposed to be out working. Will always be working. Exactly. Yeah. It put this kind of like permanent condition of being a laborer onto black women. Yes, absolutely. Wow. And that's the first law of about, what year would you say that was? 1643. So we've talked a lot about state control of black women, but your book also talks about the way that black women resisted all of the things we've been talking about this episode. And we got to talk about that. Black women were constantly pushing back against that violence. Black women were in a position to really understand what was happening, what what hereditary racial slavery meant because of their reproductive capacity. They were the ones who may have seen another woman's child being taken from her or had their own child taken from them. They were the ones who understood like the depths of that violence. And so it shouldn't surprise us that Black women are alongside Black men resisting enslavement. They are 
pushing back. They are trying to wrest control over their bodies from slave owners in large ways, in joining rebellions, in rising up, in running away, and also in what we might think of as smaller ways, right? In trying to prevent a pregnancy or trying to to resist rape or to resist being forced to give birth. There are also ways in which enslaved women like enslaved men are, you know, slowing down their work or pretending they don't understand orders or running away, especially in the Caribbean and Latin America, to join maroon societies, which are communities of of runaway Black people who are living, you know, often in the mountains or in the woods and creating autonomous villages and communities and maintaining their freedom. If you read the archives looking for lots of big descriptions of Black women's resistance, you're not going to find it because, of course, the people who write things down and put them in the archive are not interested in Black women. But if you read carefully, you see that Black women are involved on all levels of efforts to abolish slavery, either individually or collectively. And I think that's really important for us to remember. There's a deep history of Black women's resistance and of Black women's critical intellectual and political thought that is mobilized to problem solve and to resist and to organize. Yeah. So the slave trade ended because there was this idea that Africans were dangerous, but in being mothers, there were second or third generation people who led and were part of rebellions. And that's really that's part of resistance is like raising a kid who turns out to be a leader of a rebellion or who runs away, who resists slavery after you. You're absolutely right. To wrap up, bring it all together to the present, is that the Dobbs decision is is still about control over reproduction. You were talking about like dispossession and how it affects beyond just Black people. And it really, it's about controlling like the poor and non-white people because I keep seeing, I've seen it everywhere. It's like, these are the people who are least able to get around abortion rulings, who if they live in a state that like outlaws abortion are the least Mm -hmm. able to find their way to a place where they can. One of the things that I believe very strongly is that what denying women the right to abortion does is it takes away, you can't, you can't give rights, like citizenship rights, capital R rights, to a fetus without taking rights away from a full adult woman. And so part of what the abortion debate does is it pits a woman against the fetus. It creates a kind of maternal fetal conflict. And this is something, as Dorothy Roberts has argued, is rooted in slavery. Because if you are an enslaved woman who's fetus and then child belong effectively to someone else. You have created a wedge between a woman and her child, a wedge that she may work really hard to overcome, right? But it's a, it's a legal wedge. What the abortion decision does is it says just fundamentally that the right of a fetus is more important than the right of an adult woman. And that's something that enslaved women experienced from the 16th century forward, the idea that they did not have bodily rights, you know? And so what I see as the through line here is that that uh, presumption that the state 
can take rights away from you is built into the terms of the debates around abortion. And on another level, what you just said is absolutely true. Uh, This is not something that's going to only affect Black women by any means. It's something we're already seeing. We're already seeing women across the racial and the economic spectrum being criminalized for miscarriage, for uh, stillbirth, for all sorts of things that the state now feels like they can accuse women of having, you know, broken the law by by having a miscarriage. This kind of alienation between a woman and the fetus that she's carrying has deep roots. And I think we need to spend a lot of time thinking about what those roots have enabled. Thank you so much for coming on my show, Professor. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I really appreciated the opportunity to talk to you and to talk to your listeners about these issues. I think we have to do the work to center uh, the histories and the lives of Black women, of Black people, of other dispossessed people, so that we can understand the grips of violent racial capitalism that we're still um, struggling in. Yeah. The story doesn't really make a lot of sense if you take Black women out of it. It just, it feels kind of spontaneous, like, oh, the government wants to control reproduction, but it's, Mm -hmm. the government has always been trying to control reproduction. Absolutely. Absolutely. As always, keep spreading the word about this show. Hopefully, learning a little bit more about how we got here will help us figure out where we're going and maybe even shape where that is. All power to all people, y'all. 